Well, this morning is our second week of our local emphasis at Wayside Chapel, and we have a uh, special guest speaker this morning, Dr. Craig Ott. Um, Craig is the director of the um, doctoral program for intercultural studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and he also is a professor of uh, missions and intercultural studies there. He's also the author of multiple books, uh, subjects like pluralism, global church planting, uh, encountering the theology of missions. We've got some of these in our library in the back if you'd like to check them out. Craig is also a missionary with Reach Global, which is the um, international mission arm of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And he travels six to eight weeks a year um, doing uh, leadership development and uh, different programs in schools around the world. And I, I mentioned that because I met Craig actually in 1991, I think, at a church planting school that the Free Church was holding, and he and his family were serving as missionaries in Germany at that time. Um, so the, his relationship with Wayside goes back some 30 years, which is a wonderful thing to celebrate as well. I mention these things because Craig is a man of, of proven character, of integrity and commitment. Um, to what God is doing around the world, to his global mission to transform people's lives and to make disciples of all the nations. Would you warmly welcome Dr. Craig Ott this morning. Thanks, Rick. Well, great to be back. It's been a while since I've been uh, back to Wayside and be able to share with you and uh, it has been a, a great ride together. You've been wonderful partners with us in all these uh, 30 years. Not quite as long as the Vermeers, but uh, a long time, and you've been uh, uh, with us all the way. Uh, we were 21 years in Germany before returning to, to teach at Trinity and do international work. I divide up my time roughly about three-quarters. This is on paper, of course. Three-quarters of my time work, teaching at Trinity and working with, with the next generation of, of mission leaders, and, and, uh, and then about the other quarter of my time is spent doing international consulting. A lot of church planner training is what we do, uh, consulting with international leaders. You know, there's a growing movement of what we call majority world, what used to be the mission fields. Those churches are growing. They're sending missionaries. They're looking for, for uh, assistance and training on how to do that better. And so this is a big part of my role and a big part of your partnership with us in that ministry. Now, now I understand there actually is another seminary somewhere in Texas down here that's supposed to be pretty good, but um, uh, some of your staff, I guess, have gone there. But, you know, the people who are really serious come up to Trinity, like, like uh, you know, Pastor Rick here, and they get the real deal. So, you know, if somebody is, is interested in, in seminary studies or preparing for mission work, you can talk to me afterwards. I'd be glad to, uh, to tell you the, the real inside story. Okay. So, um, Today, um, we're going to take a big picture at a big story, and uh, you know, everybody loves a good story, uh, whether it's uh, the paperback novel or Hollywood movies or <clears throat> theater productions or, uh, you know, bedtime stories, campfire tales, uh, and yeah, let's say it, the National Enquirer, everybody likes a good story, right? Um, they all live from our fascination with a plot line and, and the adventure and the surprise. And whether it's Shakespeare or fairy tales, uh, there are stories of the challenge of good and evil. They stimulate the imagination. They, they give meaning to our existence. That's why we identify with stories. We see ourselves in them. And of course, each of us has our own unique personal story 
that we may or may not like to tell. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen said, every man's life is a fairy tale written by God's fingers. But for some of us, our story might seem more like a a tragedy or maybe uh, a comedy, but anything but a fairy tale. Today, some would say there's really no story at all to, to give real meaning to life. There's, there's no grand narrative that, that somehow tells us about where the world is going and, and what life means. Um, physicist Stephen Hawking claimed in an interview, and this was recently depicted in the Hollywood film Theory of Everything, where he said, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one of among a hundred billion galaxies. Really? <laughs> is, is your life, is, is the human race nothing more, nothing less than a chemical scum? Or is there really a story that somehow gives it all meaning? Is there really an author of creation that had something in mind with all this coming into existence? I want to tell you today, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, there is. And as a Christian, our life can and does have ultimate meaning to the extent that we connect up our lives with that grand story that the Creator is writing when He called all of this into existence. See, the Bible doesn't only tell you that you are not a scum, but that you are actually created in the image of God. But the Bible also tells us that there is this storyline unfolding that God has a purpose in human history. This is not a fairy tale. This is not make-believe. This is not uh, something we sort of just talk ourselves into. This is the ultimate reality, the ultimate story. And this is where we often get it backwards, even as Christians. And the theologian and, and mission leader Christopher Wright put it this way. We ask, where does God fit into the story of my life? When the real question is, Where does my little life fit into the great story of God's mission? Do you see the difference there? See, we kind of write our story and we say, now, I'd like God to fit in that. That would be very nice. Where God is saying, wait, no, 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 no. I have a grand story. I have a mission that is unfolding. Will you fit into that? He goes on to say, we want to be driven by a purpose tailored for our individual lives. And when we should be seeing the purpose of life, including our own, wrapped up in the great mission of God for the whole of creation. He calls this a God-centered refocusing of mission. Uh, A God-centered refocusing of our lives. See, our God is a God who has a mission. Our God is a God who has a purpose in history. And it's, it's like a grand drama. What is that purpose? Well, this morning I want to, in, in, in a very uh, 
cursory way, sort of trace that grand drama to help you see how you fit in. Because you see, God invites us to step onto the stage of his grand drama, to participate in his mission in history, to enter his story, and that story includes the nations. That's sort of the missionary part of the message this morning. And so he invites us not to enter passively, not to be uh, just spectators, but we have a role to play. And, and I don't want you to miss your curtain call. I don't want you to be uh, sort of sleeping in the dressing room. I don't want you to be caught in, in the backstage playing Candy Crush when your curtain call comes to enter onto the stage of God's grand drama. So, so bear with me. We're going to move through a lot of different scriptures. You don't have to try and follow everything. If you're a note taker, you can write down the references. They'll be on the screen. So let's go back to the beginning of the story. Where else but Genesis chapter 1, Act 1, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty basic, but I have to say it because today people have such alternative, various views of who God, if they believe in any kind of a God, who that God, what that God is like. You see, the God of the Bible is not an impersonal higher power. The God of the Bible is not one among many gods. The God of the Bible is not a, a, a God who, who works for me, but not for you. The God of the Bible is not sort of a balance of good and evil, the yin-yang of Eastern religion. The God of the Bible is not fickle, random, unreliable, capricious like the gods of Hinduism. The God of the Bible is the one true creator of heaven and earth. And he alone is worthy of worship. He is a personal God. He has intentions. He is a righteous God. He is a good God. And all of this is to be reflected in his creation. He is purposeful. So act one is just to get that clear in our mind who our God is. Act two, the fall. Genesis chapter three. So God creates and everything he sees is good. And man, Adam and Eve are created in his image. They have a special status in his creation to reflect him, his character, and his glory. And there's one thing that God says. He says, don't eat from this one particular fruit that's not good for you. And they're tempted by Satan and they make that fateful choice. Now, what was the choice? Just to eat a fruit? The choice was to believe the lie that says God is withholding from you something that it really is good for you. See, see that's, that is the nub of sin. To disbelieve God, that God created us with good intent, what is good for us that keeps us in relationship with him. And the core of sin is to say, no, no, God, you, you actually don't mean good with me. There's some good stuff out there. You're just kind of holding back because you're, for whatever reasons, you, you're, you're, you're doing this. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and take my own storyline and I'm going to get that what I think is good for me. And of course, it was not good. It was not good. And, and uh, God said, if you eat this, you, you will die. 
And um, this is the way sin's ever been ever since. We, we want our own storyline. We want our own path. And we think that, well, what God is saying, you know, all those commands and stuff, you know, it, it, it sounds kind of good, but I think there's a better way. What's really good for me? And we depart from God. And, and we become, God created us to be, if it's not too crude, the square pig that fits the square hole that fits into his creation. And we said, no, I'd actually rather go into the round hole. That's what I think is good for me. And we no longer fit what he created us for. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty together again. Our relationship with God was shattered. Our relationship with each other was shattered. And it couldn't just be somehow Mended. We couldn't put it back together again. And the story degenerates very rapidly in the scriptures from, from here on out. You have, you have a Cain and Abel and, and a brother killing his own brother. But going back to the garden, we see something extremely significant that's easy to miss. And that is Adam and Eve, they, they try and hide from God. You see, that's, that's what we want to do because we know this is... A, not a good thing to encounter God, the, the, the real God. Now, now, the gods we make up, the gods that kind of I designed to my own personal taste, oh, yeah, a little religion, that feels good. But see, the encounter with the true and living God, that's a frightening proposition. Adam and Eve try and hide from God. They try and cover themselves. But what does God do? Does God say, well, I warned you, you will die, so have it your way, go hide and die. This is not what God says. We read these haunting words in Genesis 3, 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? See, they hear God coming into the garden. God goes on a search for Adam and Eve. Now, of course, he really knew where they were, but, but the scripture, the story is telling us that God is a God who seeks men and women who would hide from him. He does not execute justice immediately. He's a God who desires to seek and save the lost. Now, the word mission just comes from the Latin word to send and sending, and God is a God who sends his sending love to bring lost people back into fellowship with him to exercise mercy. This is a missionary God who from the very day of the fall goes on the search to bring man and woman back into fellowship with him. That's our God. That's the character of God. Now, how many of you have, well, a lot of you are older. You might have grandchildren, but how many of you know you had children, okay? Everybody with children, hands up here. Come on, a lot of you. All right. Now, remember when that child was maybe about four years oldish, and I know most of you have done this, and you were at the shopping mall or Six Flags or at the beach, and you said, now, Johnny or, or Susie, stay close to me. Don't go wandering off because, you know, something bad could happen if you do that, right? But what happened? You know, you turned your back, and guess what? You know, Johnny's gone, right? Uh, Susie's gone. And uh, so, so what do you do at that point? You say, of course, you know, I warned Johnny if he went wandering off, something bad would happen. So I guess he's going to just have to find his own way home today. You didn't quite say that, did you? In fact, you might have had sort of a little, you know, a little, one of those little panic moments where you go, whoa, 
gone, you know, kidnapped or lost or, you know, drowned in the ocean or, you know, you, all of a sudden, the other things don't matter anymore. We'll say, well, wait a minute, let me try this dress on first and then we'll go worry about Johnny, right? No, 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 no. Everything stops. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of God. Maybe you're here today, you don't really know God. Oh, what I'm telling you is all kind of new. It's a little strange. I just want to tell you, this is the God of the Bible. He's looking to bring you back into fellowship with himself. And you may try and hide from him, but he's looking. He's a God who came. Jesus said it this way. I'm jumping ahead on the story a little bit. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, there's the character of God again. This is our God. A seeking and saving missionary. God, he gives Adam and Eve a promise. He says, one day, you, you know, the, the, Eve, you're going to have a baby. There's going to be, from your seed, there's going to be one who gets wounded, but he's going to conquer evil. He's going to conquer the devil. It's a promise God gives right there. He's going to do something about the situation. God takes the initiative. God doesn't say, well, let's see if you can't work your way out of this mess. He takes the initiative. Okay, we've got to move on here. Uh, the story keeps getting, getting worse. And so, so Cain and Abel uh, killing fratricide. You've, and then, then you've got things getting so bad, God says, I've got to start over with the human race. So I'll find the best family, the best people I can find. Noah, let's, we'll start fresh. We'll just start fresh. We'll, we'll just wipe out everything. Start with this really good family. And what happens? Noah no sooner gets out of the ark. God makes a fresh start with the human race. Noah gets stone drunk so bad his own son has sexual relations with him. Things are not looking good. That's the best we could bring, the human race. And then man decides, we're going to build a tower to God. We're going to, we're going to work our way back to God somehow. Tower of Babel, right? Genesis 11 starts out with the unity of humanity. And at the end of that, God scatters them and we've got different languages and people don't understand anymore. And, and, and this, this human diversity is beautiful. It, is it. it results in all kinds of things like genocide and wars and territorial strife and all this stuff we're seeing in the newspaper today. Genesis 11, the curtain falls on Act 2 and it is dark. It, is, it, is not a, it doesn't look good. Things are going from bad to worse. But after Genesis 11 comes, Genesis 12. And the curtain rises on Act 3. And Act 3, Act 3 is the, the creation of a new kingdom people. Now, how does this happen? In Genesis chapter, the very verses after the destruction of humanity and the creation of all these nations that end up conflicting with one another, God calls this, this man Abraham, not because he's better than anybody else, but he's going to work through this Abraham. And so... He gives Abraham this call and this promise, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse who curses you, and I and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God is going to create now a whole new people out of the family of Abraham and it's not just that God says, well, you're better than anybody else and you're going to get to have the blessing and, and so Abraham, kick back and enjoy life because I chose you. No, no. God chose Abraham to be a channel of his blessing to all 
nations, to all the families of the earth. That promise is repeated to Abraham. It's repeated to Isaac. It's repeated to Jacob five times. The same promise that all the nations, families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And so the promise is getting clearer now how God is going to to address our, our human dilemma. Israel is to be a conduit of God's blessing. Psalm 67 says, This prayer, we we like the first part of it. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Now, we like to stop right there, right? Yeah, Lord bless us. But it goes on, so that your ways on earth may be known and your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations and the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. See, see, the blessing for Israel, this was the tragedy of Israel. They thought they were better than everybody else. They thought blessing of God was just for them alone, and they could sort of kick back and look down on everybody else. And God said, no, I chose you to be my instruments of blessing to the nations. But they didn't, they didn't quite get it. Now, there's two ways that they were to become a blessing, and I can't take time to go into this, but essentially, if you look up these passages, Deuteronomy, and that, that they were to live a life with the law of God, the law of Moses, they were to demonstrate the righteousness, the mercy, the justice, and the goodness of God as a nation by following the commands of God. And even the temple, you say, well, the temple, you know, that's in Jerusalem. It's the only true place of worship. But even in the, the temple in 1 Kings, at the dedication prayer of the temple... Solomon prays, the first king's passage, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from distant lands because of your name, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks you so that all the peoples of the earth may know that this house I have built is in your name. See, even the temple was to be a place where the nations come and worship and see that God is a God who answers praise, a God of mercy. But for the next thousand years of biblical history, Israel's not, not following that plan. They're writing their own storyline. They're not aligning with God's grand drama. They're continually following other gods. They're continually abusing the poor. They're not living out the righteousness of God. And so the second way of blessing is that through Israel, this promise would be fulfilled Whereas Israel failed to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49.9 tells us that there is a, Israel will bring in the true light of the nations. Is it too small a thing for you? Isaiah 49.9, too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept? No, Israel, that's way too small to just think of Israel. I will make you also a light to the Gentiles. That is the light to the nations that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. See, this is a tragedy when we begin to think that God's blessing is just for us. We end up repeating the same mistake that Israel made. But that promise, light to the nations, light to the Gentiles, that would come through the true servant where Israel failed, that brings us to act four, the sending of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the kingdom. And so now God himself 
steps onto the stage of human history. You see, God is a God of sending love. He sent angels. He sent prophets. He sent miracles. He tried to send Israel. But now the living God himself enters human history. God becomes flesh. He dwells among us. And like we saw before, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which lost was lost. And so in the person of Christ, God enters history to fulfill this promise, to make it possible for us to restore that relationship, to reverse the curse. Jesus said, you know, if I cast out demons, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Well, it's not all the way here yet. It's breaking in. It's like the inauguration ceremony. It's beginning to be visible. And so he's, Jesus, in his miracles, he's, he's beginning to reverse the curse. He heals sick people. He raises people from the dead. He exposes the lie and hypocrisy. He, he's, he, he's beginning to reverse those effects of sin in human, human life. It's, it's just a taste. It's just a glimpse. Because something much greater has come. He's going to give his life as a ransom for sin so that the ultimate core problem of humanity will be broken at its core and that we can actually become a new creation. What did Jesus say? If you want to enter the kingdom of God, in John 3, what did he say? To, to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. It, it's not about fixing just something that's broken. It's about a new creation. And so Jesus makes this way that we become a new creation become children of God, it becomes possible to reverse the curse in our lives and then we begin living as a community together and, and together we begin manifesting what that means to be this kind of people under the rule of Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. It's where, where Jesus is king. And where Jesus is king over his people, that's, that's the church becomes like, like this kingdom people. Israel should have been that way, but, but they weren't. And this kingdom of people, it's made up from, from people from, from all over. And, and Jesus said, and I'm getting ahead of the story again here, but, but Jesus said be, before he left, he said, you know, this gospel of the kingdom, this is Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that's why he gave the, the Great Commission, say, like in Matthew 28, 19, to go make disciples of all nations. He said, okay, so this inbreaking of the kingdom, this, this new creation that I'm making possible through my death and resurrection, that needs to go to all the nations. Here's your, your curtain call. And now the curtain goes up with Pentecost on Act 5. The sending of the Holy Spirit... And the sending of this new kingdom people, the church. And nowhere is that clearer than in Acts chapter 1, where the disciples, they're just kind of flabbergasted with the resurrection of Christ and everything that's been transpiring in the recent days. And they ask Jesus, you know, okay, now, is now your kingdom going to finally come? I mean, in fullness, not just the little signs, but in fullness. Jesus said, wrong question. Here's what you need to know. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. By the way, that little phrase, ends of the earth, that ring a bell? Isaiah 49, 9, light to the nations so that salvation will come to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is now saying, guess what? You're on. 
I inaugurated the kingdom. I gave my life as a sacrifice. And now you're on to continue that. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So now you become that light to the nations. It's not going to happen by your own strength. It's going to be because I'm going to give you the strength of the Holy Spirit, supernatural strength to do this, because I know you can't pull it off on your own. And when the Spirit comes, you will bring this message. You'll be my witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. It's going to break geographical barriers. Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. It's going to break ethnic barriers. So there were Jews and then there were Samarians. They didn't like each other. Well, then there's the Gentiles and they're way out. No, you're going to bring it to all of them. It's going to break religious barriers. So you've got the Jews. Well, we're faithful to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And then you've got the Samaritans. Who are, eh, they were kind of syncretistic, kind of a mix. Well, then you've got pagans out there at the end of the... No, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes... You folks, and I don't think he was just talking to the 12 here, so I'm, you know, pretend that Jesus is talking to you right now. You guys, you guys are going to be my witnesses here, there, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know which one God's called you to be in, but you're going to be my witnesses. And this is my storyline. This is your curtain call to step onto the stage now. You're the new people of the kingdom. The people of Jesus, the people who live under the lordship of Jesus. And one person put it this way. I, re I really like the way he's put it. Leslie Newbegin, a, 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 he's no longer living, a, a theologian who said, the church is a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of the kingdom. The church is not equal to the kingdom. I mean, that would be pretty sad if it was. But, but the church should be a sign, like that, that road sign saying, this way to Dallas. This, this way to the kingdom. The church should be an instrument. In other words, God's working through us and we begin to manifest the goodness, the righteousness, the justice, the mercy of God. We, we become instruments of him in the new creation and preaching this message of, of new creation in Jesus. And then the one I really like is the foretaste. So how many of you like to go to the market and uh, enjoy the free samples, right? You know, so you go to the cheese table and they've got the little cheese with the toothpick, you know, and, and you go and, 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 you know, you take one of those little, and this is like the foretaste, you, you taste the cheese and what are you supposed to do? You, you buy the whole cheese. You go, mm, that's good. You go to Trader, I like Trader Joe's because they've got all this stuff. You know, chocolate covered something you've never heard of before, <laughs> right? And you go, okay, I'll risk it. You know, you try this thing. You don't even know, I can't even pronounce what it is, but you go, I'm going to buy that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Now that's the way the church should be about the kingdom of God. We're not the whole thing yet. We're, we're not the whole kingdom yet, but we're living in such a way that the glory of God, the goodness of God, what it means where Jesus is Lord as a people, not just me alone, that would be that would not be so, so tasty. But as his collective people, others look and they go, I want more of that. Because that, that's a contrast to what I have. That, that's a quality that I've never tasted before. You know, we were church planning in Germany. I like to ask new believers, you know, before they learned the right answer, I'd, I'd ask them, why did you, what was the breakthrough that you came to know Christ? You know, they, they learn the right theological answer later. But I, I like to just kind of ask them early along, you know, what, what was it? And to, you know, they didn't usually say, well, your sermons just really, you know, tipped the scales. They didn't, they didn't say that. They, they often would say something like this. You know, I, I started attending this little 
you know, Bible discussion group or, or I came to church and, and I was looking at, at the way you guys related to one another. Um, I, you know, and, and the way you cared and the way your lives were different, the way your marriages looked at stuff. And I, I said, that there's got to be something real there. That, that's the foretaste. That's what the church should be. A sign, an instrument, a foretaste of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like where Jesus is king. That's what we should be. And that's why my ministry has been so focused on church planting. Because, yes, we need to preach the gospel so that the new creation breaks in and people become born again. We need to make disciples so they learn what it means to walk with Jesus. But we need to create these kingdom communities where... They're a living community witness for Jesus. And that's more than the sum of its parts. That's more than one person here and one person there. What a great privilege it's been to be a church planner. What a great privilege, even in the hard places like in Japan, to see those communities form. They might be a little community with 30 people, but it's a little kingdom community. Might be a megachurch, but thousands. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned I go around, I travel, and speaking in many countries. It's been up to about 40 countries now where I've done some kind of teaching, consulting. I like to go make repeat visits and follow-up visits. And so I'll just give you one example in Nepal. And uh, so we went to Nepal. We did search counter training. And right, by the way, until 1990-ish, 1991, Nepal was a Hindu kingdom. So, you know, you've heard of Islamic states and fundamental states. This was Hindu state. Very little freedom for the gospel. The first Protestant churches were started in 1950. Now today, we don't know for sure, but there's probably as many as a million Christians in Nepal. Thousands of churches. So you say, well, what are you doing there trying to tell them how to plant churches? They seem to be getting along quite fine. Well, we went and we did church planter training, and, and so then we go back two years later. I'll tell you this story about a guy named Krishna. Now, you might think that's a little unusual name, and it is because that's the name of a Hindu god. This is a first-generation Christian from Hinduism. Very little practical, formal training or anything. He comes to our first church planter training. We go back two years later, and he's coming. I, I didn't put the picture up here, but he's got these posters with pictures and drawings. And what he did was after our training, he went and he created like, like little what we'd call short-term teams, and they start going around to the villages. This guy plants in two years nine churches in nine villages in, in Nepal among Hindus. He said, well, you know, we used to think we couldn't plant any churches because we would have to buy property and build a building, and then you planted a church. He said, well, we kind of heard it was okay to, to plant like house churches. Boom, off to the races. Unbelievable. Now, these, these movements need strengthening. One of these house churches, the pastor, so to speak, of this house church, is the former shaman of the village. Uh, virtually no training for these people. So the needs are enormous, where the church is growing or where the church is not growing. And the church is growing today in places that would shock you. I just came back from a trip to North Africa, and I can't talk about it because it's probably being recorded. But the church is growing in the Muslim world. Um, astonishing what has happened. Because the events that are happening in the world of Islam right now are making many Muslims see aside an ugly face of Islam that they don't like and they don't want, and they're open to alternatives. Now, are we going to be there 
to give them the alternative? Are we going to be there creating kingdom-style communities so it's, it's not just cheap talk, but it's really transformed lives and families and fellowships? That's what it's about. Well, this is, this is our curtain call for the church today, for you as an individual. I ran across, a, a, I was in the supermarket um, a couple years back and I saw a person with this t-shirt on. Uh, if you got this here, don't bother me, I'm watching the game. Now I know that some of you are going, where can I get that? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, you Google it and you'll find it. I, that's where I got the picture. Um, and I, I, you know, I thought, well, that's kind of funny, but it, it, it's kind of a picture of a lot of Christians. It, it's like, you know, don't bother me. I'm watching the game. You know, they're in the lazy boy, remote control, enjoying the entertainment value of somebody else playing the game. I want to say, get rid of that T-shirt. The Christian version that says, don't bother me, I'm attending church. That's good enough. Don't bother me because I really enjoy hearing about the missionary reports. Very entertaining. Get on the playing field. Step onto the stage. Don't cut yourself short. That's what God's calling you to. Don't settle for less. Get out of the lazy boy. I don't know what that is for you. Might might be greeting people at the door and making them see that this is a welcoming place. It might be you know, getting involved in an urban mission. It might be counseling wealthy people who have all the outward trappings but a broken, broken life. It might be getting on a short-term team that goes to Guatemala. For some of you, I can't believe that there aren't some of you in a church of this size that God would be calling to make the long-term commitment, to actually live among a people, to actually embody Jesus among a people, to actually learn their language, to say, if the Remays are leaving Japan, who's going to be there to keep doing in a place where there is so little Christian witness? And that's not a language you kind of learn online very easy. Don't bother me, I'm watching the game. Well, final act. Final act. And the curtain is going to fall on history after this final act. The return of Jesus Christ and the gathering of the redeemed from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the end picture. This is the, this is the end of the story. And I'll tell you, it's, it's a happy, glorious ending if you're, if you're, if you're with, if you're, if you're in it. We have this vision in Revelation twice, in Revelation 5, where, where the, the angels and the elders are worshiping. You are worthy. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then in Revelation 7, this vision I looked and before me was a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and language. And they're standing before the throne worshiping the Lamb. They're wearing right robes. They're holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where history's going. That's the end of the story. You see, when Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached among all nations and then the end will come, 
It will happen. And not only will it be preached, there will be those from every people who are brought into this new creation people of the redeemed, the worshipers of the Lamb. How good is that? And so Jesus calls us, will you be a part of bringing history to that end? Will you be my agent to to bring the gospel so that that becomes fulfilled reality? Because I can tell you, this will happen. This is not an if. He doesn't say, now, if you guys get on the ball, maybe all the nations will be reached. He doesn't say that. But he does call us and say, you want to be part of it? Or do you want to be in the lazy boy? So I just conclude again. There's a quote from Theodore Williams, the Indian evangelist, theologian, founder of the Indian Evangelical Mission. He says, we face a humanity that is too precious to be neglected. We know a remedy for the ills of the world too wonderful to withhold. We have a Christ too glorious to hide. And we have an adventure too thrilling to miss. Amen. So stop trying to fit God into your story. Start participating in his story. God invites us to step onto the stage of his grand drama, to participate in his mission in history, and to enter his story that includes the nations. Let's pray. Our most gracious Lord, what an amazing story it is. What a powerful story and how true it is. What a privilege that you invite us to enter into this story. So we ask you, God, to give us the courage we need, the boldness, faith that overcomes stage fright, and to seek out what our role is in this grand drama. To Jesus' glory and his name we pray. Amen.